0: It is uh, my pleasure to introduce our first speaker for the day, Dr Sue Wilson. Dr Wilson was a primary teacher and ICT coordinator before teaching and researching literacy education at Monash University. Her knowledge base centres centers upon the use of quality literature and the development of literate identities. Sue is interested in the ways that collegiate literacy discussions support connectedness, critical thinking problem-solving, and understandings of the world and one's place in it for learners of all ages. Sue values the engagement opportunities that she is able to foster through her work at Monash University, such as in her work with schools and community partners, and in her research across international contexts. Uh, Sue's presentation this morning is going to be recorded and will be made available on our podcast channel for anyone to listen to which is an amazing opportunity and we thank her for allowing us to do that. You will be sent a link uh, after the conference um, to her uh, presentation and it will be made available more broadly as well to those who can't make it here. Uh, we thank Sue for allowing us to share her presentation with a wider audience. So, uh, please join me in welcoming Dr Sue Wilson to get our keynote address, Building Connections Between Librarians, Teachers, Students, texts, and the Real World, relationships and conversations that empower and inspire.
1: Uh, thank you, Susan, for such a wonderful introduction. That was absolutely lovely. And I was hoping that you were introducing someone else because she certainly <laughs> sounds more impressive than Sue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am Sue Wilson. I can't talk without walking in using my hands, so please forgive me while I do that. Um, but it's an absolute honour to be here today, and what such a wonderful network to have now hooked into. Because to be perfectly honest, I didn't even know we were here. So um, I'm really excited about the connections that I can make with you today. Are we working? Yep. Ah, oh, tada! <laughs> So I'd just like to begin by saying thank you for welcoming me so beautifully. And I uh, am sure that you all feel extremely uh, welcome in this space because it's such a beautiful community already. Uh, I know that there are a lot of you that can't enjoy meeting each other here and connecting out of school uh, because many of you may be a little isolated in your workplaces with not as many like-minded people as what we've got today. The people in your schools are like-minded in some ways, but not necessarily exactly like you. And when you look around, there's people just like you here today. Um, you will note that I have a couple of languages in my welcome. You might be interested to know, of course, that we have the Indigenous language of the, that I stand today. But it's also, you may notice that the next one is Māori, and the last one is Fijian. And I am very fortunate to work across lots of countries had a recent trip to uh, the University of the South Pacific and connected with people from the Solomon Islands and all sorts of wonderful places and uh, understanding about their language um, backgrounds and that they're having issues about keeping their, retaining the different languages in their places, um, just like we're having the Indigenous language and our languages here today. Um, And I'll talk very briefly about that a little bit later. Uh, what I would like to give you a little bit of a run-through and a heads-up of what I'm going to be speaking on today, uh, basically we're going to talk quite a bit about the uh, relationships that we develop and how we might inspire one another and the people that they we're there for. Uh, so the students that come to the school and the other people within our school communities. Um, and inspiration is a part of that as well, so it's really important We'll be talking about uh, everyday matrices and how we can engage with those and the life experiences of people that have individual backgrounds and differences. So a lot about diversity today. Um, and what how we define effective conversations around texts. As we do that, I'm going to be wanting you to share ideas. It's not just about me. I know I came over as often an hour and a half of boring sitting over here, you, <laughs> but I'm not going to be doing that today. So I'm excited to see that we've got the cabaret style seating. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about things as we go. At the end of my presentation, I'm going to open up for you to consider one thing that you might be able to do, one small thing that you're inspired to think about, not just from listening to me, but from listening to myself and the others here today. There are wonderful people going to give presentations throughout the day. So something will strike a chord with you. And I want to invite you to think about how you can do one little thing that's going to make a difference when you return to your normal workplaces next week. Oops, backwards. There we go. Uh, Just to let you know, I will explain the photography that I've chosen to include in my slides today. So this is actually the Monash Library at Caulfield, the large one. And I chose that slide because I liked how um, you've got different students engaging in different ways. Of course, I'm very big on conversation and collaboration, um, but there are students who are sitting working individually as well. They've got devices, so maybe there's some kind of connection with someone around the world through that as well. But um, some choosing to work on their own, others walking around and talking. Definitely our students sitting and discussing maybe their work, maybe something else. But that's why i chose sure that slide and that's one of our beautiful new buildings that's at Monash at the moment. The smaller one is actually our one of our librarians at the Peninsula Library at Monash. Um, it's the Leafy campus down at Princeton and our library staff down there are sensational, so I connect with them on a regular basis as I did when I was a practicing teacher. So I've not been a teacher librarian, I've always been a, a primary teacher and a tertiary educator. Uh, i use used multi-literacies and did a lot of work with ICT and was the ICT coordinator in my school for quite some time. Um, but I have always been passion about the library, so it's really exciting to be here. So I'm going to start by talking about um, the way we understand ourselves and the other people in the world. So just bringing us back to remember that I define, and many people now define literacy as a social practice, and it's important to understand that the purpose of language <coughs> and the purpose of what we do is to communicate, to understand each other and to understand experiences. So when we're thinking about dialogic talk around text, we're thinking about what we read and how we read it. So you're probably doing a lot of that work subconsciously when you're in your schools, in your school libraries, and connecting with people around you. Those kinds of thoughts connect to our understanding of who we are as readers, who we are as people, and how we fit within the world. So I'll be talking a little bit later about the details of how that works, and I'm probably preaching to the converted. but sometimes it's nice to remember about what books actually do for us as people. And just reminding ourselves of how this sharing of experiences is what inspires a lot of people. So um, when we're enthusiastic, that that spark, that fire just ignites. And we, I'm sure you've seen it, I'm sure you've had it happen to you. You might remember I can see people smiling around looking the audience today, remembering someone who inspired them and what it did for them. So I'm sure you've all been that inspiration for people in your school. And I am pleased that you're, you're here because that tells me that you're passionate about doing that for other people as well. And particularly how when we're mindful of what we're doing and how we're doing it, the connections we're making with different people and the understandings that we're building together are really important for that process. So transparency is something that I believe in. Um, I'll show you today some things where I couldn't you know what I didn't do there, what I could have done differently, um, and how that's affected the learners that I've interacted with. Um, and I'm showing you some data from one particular research project today. Oops, wrong way. Don't you love it when you switch between that and your Okay. So, again, still talking on this same relationships. Coming back to thinking about the texts themselves. So when we engage with texts, we're engaging with the author's work, of course. So any text is composed in a particular way. They craft their work, as you know. And um, the, the purpose of texts in schools has a long history of, of being there to shape the child. So there's always been this connection with wanting to get children to breathe in particular ways, to engage with the world in particular ways and become particular kinds of people. So that's the long history we have over many hundreds of years, particularly coming back from um, the church um, readers and the school readers. I can't think of the word the church books, that there's worked on. but there's a word of You know what I mean. So the books that were used in church... Um, so there's some really important theory that's actually coming right back from the nineteen like the 1978. It's so long ago, but it was really important that Rosenblatt was talking about how the books help us or uh, children to understand their own experiences, the world, their own behaviour, and the social norms that come. Um, so taking that on um, with Patterson's work is how we now understand that it still continues, but we're a lot less didactic these days. We're not preaching to students. We're giving them choices about who they are and how they are, but a lot of the texts that they engage with gives them information about, perhaps, um, choices that they might make in ways that they might see the world. So um, it's nice to see that we're moving away from those old didactic ways. So that transaction, the talk from Rosenblatt back in the 70s about understanding, before that, people used to think that the books held the information. But now we understand that it's not there. It's the connection between the reader and the book that's so important. And if you think about your own reading practices or those of students that you've worked with over the past, you'll understand how reading can be different from one person to another. So, when we bring our experiences and our own thoughts and identities with us, we understand what's written in the book maybe slightly differently depending on how it's composed and what we're thinking about at the time. So, the context of when we're reading and where we're reading, the time and place, uh, and what's brought with us from our past histories all come to shape how we interpret that text. So... I really like the thought of thinking about the spectrum of the relationship between what's in the text and what's in the reader's mind. And the meaning that comes is somewhere in there. So it's kind of, you know, quite negotiated, which is really lovely. Um, So when we're thinking about that, the ways that our identities play out are so important and our histories and so on. As well as that, it's about who we are now and who we might want to become. So as readers, you can think about that yourself, but thinking about the children that are coming into your school libraries perhaps and when they pick up a book, perhaps they might be thinking about their futures and what they're interested in. It might be subconscious or it might be (coughs) quite um, explicit. So... When we think about the different relationships that we build within our workplaces, many of them are explicit. Now, of course, we remember that we're building relationships with the students. That's what we're there for. That's why we're employing schools. But thinking about the,
0: the relationships with
1: colleagues, of course, um, is something you think about. And the relationships you <coughs> might have with the curriculum outcomes and you know, what you're trying to do in the school in terms of particular learning. So those are the things across the disciplines, the curriculum, the learning that's happening, the students, the relationships with our, our peers. They're things we think about all the time. But the other things that are in there that we might not think about that often are things about the book relationships that we have. I'm sure you've had that moment where you sort of anyone had that moment where they're slowing down at the end of the book because they don't want to put it down They build a connection with? A, a character or a relationship with a whole town of characters mm-hmm. and you slow down because you don't want That's it to right. end absolutely um, sometimes we have moments where we skim read and we can't get, wait to get to the end of it because it's something that we need the information for or we're required to read, let's not talk about how many times we do that in Work for example um, and students do that too So thinking about the connections that we have with books and, of course, the connections we have with particular genres, particular authors, text types, things like that. So we'll tease that out a little bit in a moment as well.
0: Another relationship
1: that we often forget to think about, and it relates to any book that's got words and pictures, is the synergy between them. So we know, we understand when we think about it, if we slow down to contemplate this, we really know that the relationship between the words and pictures ends up being more than the two separately. So there's an important relationship between that and you'll notice that whenever I talk about picture books, you'll see it in my slide, I always use it as one word because I can't separate the two. The pictures and the words and the book itself are all intertwined. So I also (laughs) want you to think about the relationships that we have with the world and not just we... But we broadly, we the people that come into your library, that are in your context. So the relationships that are developed with the world, how are we thinking about what's going on in our world right now, what's going on in the past, what might go on in the future, or what we think, what we imagine might happen, um, and who we want to be and who the kids want to be, and our peers and so on, all of those things. So just things to kind of contemplate. I'm not sure we have answers for all these things, do we? Um, I've also talked quite a bit about identity and identity work, so I just want to define that for you so you know how I'm thinking about it and it might influence the way you think about it. And you might find that you think about it slightly different from me. So when I think about identity work, it's about the way we portray the characterisations of our own personality. Not unlike the characterisations in the book, so as we're portraying our own identities, we're playing our role as our own role. A lot of the time, that's in line with our private imagination of ourselves. So I know who Sue is. I'm in my mid forties. I'm not afraid to say it. I've got a 20-year-old this year. I can't believe it. So I'm comfortable with who I am, but it's not. So, there's many of you that have been through that and many children go through it. It's not an uncommon experience. But I know who I am and I'm comfortable with that. And uh, I think about my own way that I like to be. Um, and that's quite an explicit thing because I am in my mid to late 40s. So, that's something that I've developed over my life. Um, but That's not the only way that my identity is influenced. So it's ascribed to me too about who I am and who I'm expected to be. When I'm here representing knowledge and I'm representing my field and my body of interest interest and those kinds of things, I'm going to come in here and I'm not going to act like I would if I'm called at the pub or I'm coming. So who I am here is socially ascribed to some extent. There's an expectation and we do that with students in our classes and in our schools. don't we? there's an expectation of who we think they are. And sometimes they surprise us, which is really lovely. I like to surprise people too. Um, but those identities are really malleable. They're fluid, they're changing all the time. Um, so the context really changes. And if you think perhaps you come here on public transport today, if you did, I apologise for the buses and replacing trains if you had a bit of fun in the cold. Um, But every context that we walk into, we might act a little bit differently. I'm certainly acting a little bit differently now speaking to a big audience than what I did when I sat down at the table and had a quiet conversation, when I went into the bathroom and checked my hair, when I came here and I wandered and hopped on the tram and I sort of looked in shops and things like that as I passed them. Um, New little machinations that are a little bit different if I walk in at home, I'm going to walk in and, and behave in a slightly well, quite a different manner. So you're understanding the analogy that I'm talking about here. Um, when we're portraying our identity though, there are things that we choose sometimes to reveal about ourselves and that can be quite explicit or quite um, subconscious too. And if you think about the students that we're interacting with, Sometimes they choose to let us know something about themselves. They reveal all the Other times they choose to hide those things. But I want you to think about maybe why that is. What is it about our expectations and theirs that make them make or influence those decisions? Um, sometimes we do act in a way that we want to fit with our future self. So, when I first walked into academia, it took me a long time to even admit that I wanted to be an academic. Because I didn't say it out loud until I knew that I could do it. And then I knew that people were accepting that of me anyway. So, you know, I'd come up through my bachelor and I'd gone out teaching and done all sorts of things. um, And I had a history before that too. And it was really scary to think that I could be that person in what people referred to the Ivory Tower. I was just like, I can't do that. And we often do that. We walk it until we really believe in it. We try something new. So um, it's that fake it till you make it kind of stuff. Have you done that before? <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Sometimes we fake it more than we really wanted to. Um, but James G calls that mushfaking, which is quite an interesting word. We're all into words here. I love the sound of it. But um, students do it in the school all the time, and um, I've worked with kids who visually watch their peers because they're not quite sure how to behave. So they're picking up the cues of who's succeeding in the classroom, and I'm gonna do it like that too. I'm gonna to try that. Um, so the identity work that I t- talk about is those shifts between different identities and how we play out which one we're gonna behave. And as I've said a few times, a lot of the time it's we don't even notice we're doing it. And particularly with the, young, the younger we are, the more um, implicit it is and the less conscious it is. Now that I've talked about it with you, you'll start to think about it more, I'm sure. So thanks for removing that <laughs> Um But Cynthia Lewis. Speaks of these intertwined and knotty roles, and again, I love that language. It just describes, it's almost poetic language, isn't it, to describe how that happens. And reader identity is so influential when we're talking about how we engage with books. So, thinking about who am I as a reader? Am I successful? Am I considered unsuccessful? Am I labelled as a struggling student or a disengaged reader? Those kinds of labels influence how students approach books. And I'll show you a lovely clip in a little while about a student that was described to me as a (laughs) behavioural problem, a disengaged reader, a struggling learner. Um, You don't want him in your group. Let's just get someone else in your group. I'm like, no, it's valid. He's got to be in there. I'm not changing that. He's fantastic. And I hope you enjoy seeing him as much as I enjoy and working with him. He's a gorgeous kid. So I've talked a little bit about how we engage with books and this is the relationships that we build by reading. So when we're thinking about how we understand the world and ourselves through texts, there's three lovely metaphors that I'd like to share with you and they may be familiar to you. So the first one is that mirror image. So thinking about something that we've already experienced and reflecting upon it gives us a chance to become more self-aware and just to think it through, um, the other thing is that it can uh, offer us a sense of belonging. So there's some connection that makes us feel familiar when we read about something that we experienced ourselves. There's a sense of solidarity, and particularly when we ask students to read a book like that, and there are a few people who have had a similar experience, there's a bond between people as well as reader a book. There's the window analogy as well, and that's the one where we're looking out into something that we haven't experienced ourselves, looking through to something new or something different from our own lived experience. So this is the one where we get the potential for understanding something that's not known to us. We might know of it, but we've not walked it. So the more we read about it, the more we can understand it. So, thinking about the insight into the unfamiliar gives us that potential for appreciating diversity. You know, I like to think, I'd love to have time to do research on this, but you know, who's got time to sleep anyway? I'm sure you're feeling the same way here today. Um, and nice to have the quiet time to stop and reflect today, which you do really very often. But um, I like to think that when we explore something that's unfamiliar, that potentially that's the opportunity to learn and be less scared or less afraid of and perhaps less east about things. You racism, sexism, different issues, often can be unraveled by becoming familiar with something that's a little bit more scary. So diversity can be appreciated more by knowing more about different groups of people or different types of experiences. And I'd love to provide some proof to you that that exists, but I'm sure you've seen it in the real world. Um, And the last one is the door analogy. So opening doors between reality and fantasy and stepping through them and wondering what's same and what's different and what's real and what's not, what's imagined. And sometimes there can be a bit of a blur. And a lot of the time, particularly young children, love to play with that blur. And I'm sure you've seen that too, where you know they're playing something out and it's real but it's not real and it's really exciting and interesting. Um, and again, this is an opportunity for thinking about or engaging with, maybe not explicitly thinking about, but it does happen um, in perhaps in the subconscious with engaging with what we take for granted and what feels normal to us and what is not normal to us. So thinking about diversity once again, but just moving out beyond what you think is realistic, using imagination and so on, which is so crucial these days. And it gives us that border-crossing potential once again. So you've listened to me drone on for quite a while now, uh, 45 minutes or something, quite a long time. No, not quite that long, but half that long. And what I'd like you to do is turn and talk to the people about the things we've covered so far. Think about the relationships that you have in your school context. Think about
0: your students, your
1: colleagues, anyone else, the new community members that come into your schools. Or maybe don't even come in, but you still build those relationships through one another and through the interactions that we have. I also want you to think about the relationships you have with books. This is a great time to get bogged down. You yeah, I really love this book and a few of these, which I've avoided today, but I'd love to do that with you over coffee copy at some point. I will give you a few uh, recommendations if you ask me, but I'd love to hear yours more than that. Um, thinking about those synergies between what's um, crafted within books. So my jam is picture books, so of course I'm talking about synergistic words and pictures. Graphic novels is also something I'm writing to. Uh, there's a semi but I'm writing to. Um, and thinking about the relationships with the world
0: and everything else that
1: I haven't thought of. What have you thought else that I haven't? Because I'm not the guru on everything. You've got amazing ideas. So go and start talking.
0: So that's sort of wonderful. As I walked around,
1: you were having the kinds of conversations that I was wanting to stimulate. And I feel awful. You know, This is the kind of conversation that I say, do as I say, as long as I do, I have to stop it now to move on to the next moment. But it's really lovely that you've got all day to continue these conversations. And it's really gorgeous that uh, when I'm in cheap rooms or working with students in schools, that we get used to listening for that while. But in years it was almost fun.
0: But it just
1: kept going and kept going and it's just wonderful to see. So I'm going to move on now. I'm not going to be mean and ask you to share your ideas right now because it's not me that needs to hear them. It's you guys as you talk and spend your day together and network. And I hope that you will accept me as part of your network now that you're starting to get to know me. So um, you start with me now. So, I'm going to move on to thinking about what counts. And I've got to apologise too. I harvested this image from the conversation. I'm not sure if you know the conversation, which is a really wonderful source of prompts um, to thinking about things critically. And there's an education section that um, maybe publishes in predominantly academics, so. don't hold that against us. Um, and I went on to the conversation looking an image that would represent, or I actually went on to Dr Google looking for an image and saw that this one came up in the conversation, and I was horrified to see that there was no Tasmania. (laughs) Um, So then I kind of did something that I'm regretting now, and I kind of tried to make it a little bit less mean about the Tasmanians by chopping off the Torres Strait Islanders (laughs) and, you know, know, a few people over in Western Western Australia, you know, some people over here on the East Coast. So I kind of, you know, appreciated diversity by not just discriminating against one group. I discriminated against a few. Um, But yes, my apologies that not everyone's represented. So this is just a bit of a visual. um, And there is data behind the research to map this um, map of languages that are used at the moment across Australia. And we're talking here, um, the researchers that did this were looking at languages, not just Indigenous ones, but languages of migration and so on as well, Um, and mapping some diversity of what's spoken the lead languages in different parts of Australia. So I just thought that was an interesting image to, to kind of prompt us to think about what counts. So when I'm thinking about what counts in terms of book talk, I'm thinking about what makes us decide what effective book talk is. So when we're collaborating and expecting students to talk around books, the research tells us that the more um, student-lead it is, the better the student outcomes are. So um, they still need to be adult led in terms of giving some guidance but then standing back from that and letting the students go. So, teaching them how to have those conversations and engaging with them, but having the natural talk where we're not guiding everything that takes place. So, um, Teresa Kremem talks about learner inclusive, inclusive pedagogy, and she's the one that coined the term standing back. Um, but before she coined the term, I'm sure we were starting to do that anyway. Um, but it also is important that we build in the environments where we're expecting these kinds of conversations to take place, we know that there needs to be an element of trust. And that trust and risk-taking are absolutely intertwined. So, encouraging students to think about things and share ideas that they're going to feel safe to share. Um, Sylvia Pantaleo, oh my goodness, she's one of my absolute academic crushes. so if you've got nothing to do, have a look at Sylvia Pantaleo's work. Um, She's got this beautiful body of work that is just so interesting and she works in research with texts like The Red Tree and graphic novels and all sorts of things, having discussions with students in schools from uh, primary and early secondary schools as well. And she talks and is inspired by Neil Mercer, who also talked about exploratory talk and co-construction and into thinking. So I'll just explain a little bit about what they are. They seem quite logical, but to give you an understanding of how Sylvia talks about them. Exploratory talk is that stuff where we're talking about something we're not quite sure, or you know, there's a little bit of collaboration perhaps, or it could be done individually, where, you know, you could be talking to yourself, thinking things through... But usually, bouncing ideas off a partner. I'm not quite sure what that means. So, oh, it could be this. Oh, yeah. Well, that's how I understood it. That kind of talk. <laughs> the co-construction is where then the conversation moves into the two people building up their understanding, and it's done together, which is similar to the interthinking. But interthinking is more intertwined. So it becomes there's a synergy there as well. Um, indeterminacies we within a text of those bits where you come into it, Sean Tan's fantastic at this and he actually writes about doing it intentionally, where there, there's artists that do it beautifully as well um, and he's of course both so he um, talks about leaving gaps in what he's doing, where there is no definite answer to what's happening, very much the opposite to that didactic style of the text that I was talking about earlier about those opportunities to tease out and wonder. And such rich conversation happens when well, we can do that. Um, and then we're thinking about storytelling within conversations about books too. So there's storytelling within the books if we're thinking about narrative texts, but also the stories we tell when we're thinking about what we're reading. You know, maybe the stories we remember and the stories that perhaps we share with one another or are shared with us. And they're the things that we remember. They're the things that we connect without that. Oh, and I just want to um, prompt you into the next slide to think about we know that schools aren't level playing fields, certainly. Some kids get more access than others. And it's not intentional, it's inculcated in how our system works and what we do. And often we don't remember that as much as perhaps we could. So what we have to think about is which experiences allow students to connect with things that are important to them and relevant to them? What can they, what are they able to share? What are they able to think about? What are they given time to tease out? And how can they connect if it's something that's perhaps not considered academic enough for our school content? So, what is relevant in your context? Something to think about, and something I'll get you to chat about in a minute. So, thinking about the different types of text, and I'm again <coughs> questioning to some words, I'm sure, about ranges of text and different text types. So, I've just got a list here that I'll go through very quickly, remembering that we need to use digital and traditional text, and I'm sure you're at least appreciative of that. If you're not all over it, um, it depends on what technologies you've got in your schools, um, how they work, whether you've got beautiful moniker here that can assist when the tech doesn't work quite perfectly. I'm going to take everything when I go. Uh, No, you can't have (laughs) it. We'll just take half each. So um, the choice in book selection is so important for readers and reader identity development. And we know that giving students and people choice to outrun what they read is crucial for them. And in the school environment, we can't always do that. But perhaps in the library, you get to do it a little bit more than classroom teachers do. And encouraging classroom teachers to do it in their classroom as much as possible might be something you can lead the way with. So we've got mixed genre texts and hybrid texts. And I've ored them here because some people define them similarly, some people think of them separately. And I don't think there needs to be a right or wrong, but thinking about hybrid texts as the ones that weave things through and mixed genre, perhaps uh, where there's a bit of this and a bit of that, I don't know, it's kind of hard to make your mind up exactly what the difference is between the two. So I'm going to put them together... Giving you an example of historic fiction, for example. And not all historic fiction is the same. Some are more historical and some are more fictional. Um, there's also texts that have a juxtaposition. So there's two things side by side and you can consider them differently. Jenny Baker's window, the mirror, sorry, is an example of that. A dumb but they're juxtaposed rather than interwoven. Um sometimes I am sure you I hope you've come across stinky what no, is it? Itchy nose no. I don't want to say what I usually say. It's often in an in intentional way, so you can get hooked up on this one the wrong way. Um hairy nose itchy butt? Is that the way? It's not stinky, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so hairy nose itchy butt is a story of a wombat who's um
0: Environment is
1: being logged. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got to meet you up and they like to do a bit of this one. And he can't do that without crossing the road, which is quite a dangerous thing to do. So that is actually uh, a text that I think has been a hybrid text. Or perhaps maybe a bit more mixed genre. It weaves through some factual information in how we understand the text, how we approach the narrative, because In the storytelling, it's a bit like um, revealing how the environment influences the characterisation and the experience, the activity that happens in the book. But then there are also facts and information and there's an element of information text at at the end of the text. Um, Jackie French's Flood and that series Fire and all of those books do the same thing, where you get those beautiful um, passages of information from Jackie and Resortly, um, for example, talking about how the book came about and how the images were made in an intentional way. So that's another example of a, what I would call perhaps a mixed genre text. But teasing out what's mixed mm-hmm. genre and what's um, hybrid is quite interesting. We must not forget about poetry uh, in some. Places. poetry is becoming a little forgotten as we're getting up into the high schools and doing it in a traditional way that can become a little higher but poetry is in our younger areas of schooling and books as well um, and it's a really important art form. Even using slam poetry to bring it right into contemporary um, day is really wonderful there's beautiful work being done by really engaged young learners and then, of course, there's a whole heap of narratives and picture books was my first one. Wordle's picture books, of course, can be... the second one I thought of, and graphic novels, and all of those, sci-fi, fantasy. You can keep going about the different kinds of narratives that are out there. But making sure we weave through lots of exposure to different texts and giving choice, but perhaps encouraging students and, and readers to consider moving away from what's familiar and what's comfortable and really stepping out and taking the risk of it in the book. Because you don't have to to it. you can put it down if you want to. Oh, and screenplays and scripts and, you know, and all those wonderful things are really important. So, now thinking back to what counts. So, I've done the kind of what counts around different kinds of texts and I argue that they all count to some, to some extent and we shouldn't be being too with brow We should be using popular cultural texts as well as the traditional ones. Um, So I'm not saying leave them behind, but the variety is crucial. So when we do that work, there's also accepted expectations that come through in how we engage with texts and how we want our learners to do that. Um, And there is a level of acceptance that the students know is embedded in every interaction that we make. So we either accept something or we don't. Or well, sometimes some kind of negotiation, but that is all socially constructed as well, and we have a little bit of choice on how we think about those expectations and those acceptances that we have um, in our interactions. But we're the ones, quite often, that are in a position of power to some extent, and people are aware of that. Even young learners know that you know this, if this person tells me what to do, I to do it. But if this person tells me what to do, well, know, maybe. Um, and the way that we want them to behave in our libraries, <coughs> to behave in our schools, to <coughs> develop understandings as well. So it's not just the behaviour of, um, like I think, the behavioural issues, but it's the reading behaviours, the developing of knowledge and so on as well. So what we think about is just every day. We take that for granted. And having a moment to think about, unpack what's inculcated in what we do, what is just done because that's how we do it, and testing out, you well, know, is that, uh, missing something there? Um, so, of course, you know that you affirm things and, and we do that positive affirmation to encourage people to do more of whatever they're doing right and the people around the world would have um, sometimes we redirect because it's something that we don't accept, And sometimes we just don't tolerate things. So we need to do that too. But sometimes we need to let negotiation happen when it's things that are actually okay to be negotiated. So I just want you to think about that. Um, considering that sometimes... It takes a student a little while to come around to the academic understanding that we want them to have. And they might need to do something that links to something that's familiar out of school that wouldn't be normally an academic part of the conversation. And I'm going to show you some use of pop culture and talk about that as a way through there so that they can negotiate in and start to develop a link between what they understand in their homes and in their day-to-day lives and how that can help them understand what we want them to come out with, that's all. So I'm going to show you this clip. This is a child that you may kind of feel like you know. You've worked with a child just like him. Um, so I'm just going to play a little bit of the clip and let you think about it for a moment. <coughs> don't need to blast your ears. welcome to Kids Smart
0: TV.
1: We're in the club. It's going to be so cold. It's going to be so Ooh, yeah. We are doing a cartoon. Okay, so this is not the kind of language that you would expect in your libraries or in your schools, but he's talking about doing a cartoon, and he's using body language and he's being really engaging, because what's he doing? He's imitating. He's imitating. He's creating a podcast of his own. He's on YouTube, he's a YouTuber. He's seen other YouTubers, and he wants to be just like them. And he's actually got a channel. I don't think he's even making money. Or was making money at that time. Go him. But he's possibly that kid that comes in and is told to shush. Or told to sit still. Or told to be something other than what he can at on. I'll show you a little bit more. I want you to listen really carefully to what he does digitally with this clip as well. It's going to happen. So all your ideas in there, if you put
0: everything in there, and it's
1: going to be more masculinity, and it's going to be lots of ability. He's got some skills, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. they may be just not academic literacy skills, and his oral language we would want to be developed more, more So he's even got, I don't know if you noticed at the top, that it came up with what do you want my cartoon to be about? He's got a subscribe button you can't miss. But he's actually engaging. And people were giving him answers and saying, Oh, I was going to do a cartoon about this. So he's really knowing this genre, isn't he? He's working it beautifully and very, very talented. But are are we harnessing those talents in our environments? I'm sure you do sometimes because you hear, and that tells me from the conversations I've heard and those of you that I've met that you're really engaged. But sometimes maybe we forget to do that, and I certainly do, and I'll show you a clip where I did. So you might find him later. It'll be in the slides. I'm not going to um, continue on, but the clip does go for about three and a half minutes, uh, and it's a wonderful one. Here we go. Yeah, thank you. So... What I'm thinking about here is what kind of talk are we allowing? And how do we define talk? And what kind of discourses and I'm using discourses here with a capital D, because James G has influenced to do that. He thinks about the discourses, not just the words, but the body language and the interactions that maybe even the engagement with things in the room and resources and, and so on. So that's the classroom discourse if you like, um, the library discourse. Um, what's going on in the space and the interactions. So, what do we think is relevant in our libraries? You've got a little bit more flexibility in classrooms, That there is time for behind play talk that might actually be really engaging to the students. And you've got opportunities to get to know a little bit more about students that they might reveal to you in that space. Depends on how much freedom they get, doesn't it? Um, Things about you know when are kids allowed to talk and what are they allowed to talk about? How long do they get the floor for? What do we cut off? What do we encourage? Just things to (coughs) think about as you go through. So coming back to the diversity again, appreciation of that and allowing some space in what we do to bring that in gives that beautiful foundation for students to feel supported and to feel belonging. And to build that trust and that ability to take risks. So of course we know that when we're talking with students that opening to questions is really important. I'm sure we've had that drummed into us over the many years of our careers and we're really good at asking those. But what I forget to do sometimes is allow space for the different responses. And it's wonderful when the responses do surprise us. But sometimes that can become a little bit scary. I now feel anxiety in the pit of my stomach and I know there's lots of times where I've felt it in conversations and I'm like, where's this going now? So (coughs) those moments, those tensions are often a signal for the teachable moments and allowing that to happen within reason can be a really high quality interaction. Oops, wrong way. So... Again, thinking about what we value, what connections are valued, but we need to think about how the connections that students make between, say, texts and their real lives, their own experiences, like we do when we read. We have private imaginations both through our head, the connections that we make, and sometimes we share them and sometimes a lot of the time we probably don't. But I've worked with students who, when they read books, they've understood them because Culture links that they've made to their, the things that they've seen and done in their own environments. So, um, Tom and Jerry are pictured here to remind me to tell you about students that we were talking about, we were looking at uh, John Seisfield's Inky Cheese Man that was drawn uh, illustrated by uh, Lane Smith. So, hopefully, you know that text that's been around for a while. If you don't, you to do go a Google store for John for and Lane Smith. Um, they They the mass curves and all sorts of things as well. But we were using this book that was um, you know, parodies of fairy tales and one of the students said, we were looking at the very ugly duckling. One of the students said, oh, I've seen a parody like this on Tom and Jerry. And Tom and Jerry are running around and da 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 And yeah, you know, they understood that the ugly duckling was not appreciated because it wasn't really you know, they were talking about what was inside what was more important and all of those sorts of things. But how they'd seen it in the time Jerry cartoon, and that's how they understood parody. So when we talked about that this was a work of parody, and that it had been postmodern elements, they started to be able to use that language as well, because they had been into understanding parody through time It was the same with a different group of kids who went straight to Minecraft. So Thomas that you'll see in a little while that was on one of the slides, still I'll show you some video <coughs> of him and another uh, here of his shortly. They went straight to Minecraft, and this was allowed because when I was just having a bit of a chat with Thomas, I spent a bit of extra time with him because I had been told he was a okay, behavioural really issue, and I was interested to kind of get to know this kid. So when I
0: first met him
1: and I, I introduced myself and I asked him what he was interested in, he started talking about Minecraft. And because I knew a little bit about Minecraft and I was able to have an actual conversation with him about the different elements of it and how he played it and what he did and who characters he liked and all that sort of stuff, he suddenly knew that he was allowed to talk to me about Minecraft. So then when we we're in an academic space and we we're talking about parodies, he took the risk to talk about something that he wouldn't necessarily be allowed to talk about in an academic workplace. So for him that risk-taking of going, oh, I can explain parody by going, yeah, well, in Minecraft, I've got this YouTuber that I watch and, and he does parodies of Katy Perry songs. So if you can remember don't, um, Last Friday Night, there's actually a YouTuber that has recorded Don't Mine at Night that's about Minecraft and the heralds of mining at night and the characters that can come from the room. It's actually a really good parody. Um, I spent a lot of time you know, engaging in pretty funky stuff. So, understanding that not only is there a connection there between him and I and Minecraft and the book, there's an affirmation of who he is and a sense of belonging. But when we're coming back to make sure that we're still doing the business of school, there was actually a curriculum there that he was able to achieve because he could explain to me very clearly and concisely. What apparently is how they work and give me examples of them. Fantastic work. And this was huge because of behavioural problems way below the curriculum. So what I want you to think about for about five minutes, we haven't got much longer, what do you think could be considered as effective in your classroom or in your school libraries? Which texts might (coughs) you be starting to think about and starting to include in your collections, starting to point out to learners and, and show appreciation of when they show interest in something. Um, which literacies are we thinking about when we're in our school libraries? Which experiences are we allowing our kids to connect to? So think about the connections, have a bit of a chat with the people around you, and if you can, Try and connect that back to the relationship stuff we were talking about when I had to stop you talking. <laughs> <laughs> Go. I just had wonderful conversations with Jacqueline about how to So I'm trying to get readers to engage with different types of texts. And we've got these lovely <coughs> and co- comics and graphic novels and things like that that they read, Scooby-Doo comics and all sorts of stuff. What we call them my books. And we tell them, yeah, you can read the lolly book for a bit but then you've got to read something else. Fruit, vegetables, probably. Fruit. Yes, the fruit, <laughs> vegetables. Thank you, Jacqueline. So you've got your lollies and you've got your fruit and vegetables. And, so, you know, you've got your sometimes food and your other foods, the, the nourishing ones. The thinking about books that nourish <coughs> is a great idea. But we've got to remember that those those lolly books nourish our as well and that there are times when they actually connect to real life. And we can tease out something that's perhaps a little bit more academic, if you like, or a little bit deeper thinking about what's happening in those books, too. So as long as the students aren't thinking that we're devaluing those books, then it's great to be using those kinds of terms. Uh, but we just have to use them carefully. So I just want to go on, I'm going to bring you back to that bit that might be a little bit scary for you now. Oops. This is that plan forward moment. Uh-oh. But I'm not asking you to be accountable to me. So it's not theory. But what I want you to think about is what can you do or think of just a little bit differently as you go forward into your practice again. And as I said at the start, it may not be something that I've got you to think about today. It may be something from one of the other wonderful speakers the rich conversations that you have, maybe even over the morning tea or over lunch. It may be a conversation that you hear something about what someone's doing in another school. But what should you to consider? Something that you might do, something little, that you might do or just behave in a slightly different way because you're thinking about valuing other people's everyday experiences and lives, their literacy. That they may have different literacies to what we consider appropriate for school. You might think about something that you can do to foster a connection, to empower, to inspire. Or just developing that, that environment that is that rich, warm, giving environment where we share and we trust and we take risks and we connect with the world and who we are as people and what we want from ourselves, perhaps even. So here's the scary bit. If you have a device that you'd like to use and you want to hop onto Socrative, you just go onto, just click this link, so even if you Google Mm -hmm. Socrative and go in and ask for student login, it's a free piece of software, I encourage you to remember how easy Socrative is. Just take a moment to go on there and you can join my room with this silly code that no one can ever remember. So it's just, you can type in the URL or just Google Socrative, log in, and if you have a plan forward now, post it. If you don't, you might like to post it through the day or sometime on your way home. doesn't matter when you do it. But it will be interesting to see it's all de-identified. No-one will know who you are. You go in as a student log in and it will just be random people. And it will be interesting to see what you say as you're playing forward. So think about developing that. Um, I'm going to give you the opportunity. I will put the Socrative back if anyone needs to see it. But I just wanted to thank you for your participation. My email address is there and I'm quite happy to have conversations with people and to continue after this day. I'll be sticking around, I do have good work, I might have to do a bit on the side, but I'll be sticking around to hear presentations and to have conversations with you today and hopefully we can continue um, the relationship. So I do have references in the slide and they will be shared. I don't know what to do us, so I'm an academic, sorry. Um, that's my jam. Um, but that's the supportive link. And if you are a person that's interested in technology or you might be a person that's not so interested in it but <coughs> monitor, you might need to use it a little bit, this is a non-scoring one. So thank
0: you very much. We've got, I think, a little bit of time for questions. Yeah, well, we think so, I think. OK, the think thing comes here. Good pass. I think just like um, I can say, on behalf of everyone, lovely round of applause there, but just a small gesture. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank, thank you, Sue. On behalf of the association, I think Sue's done an excellent job of um, uh, talking to the theme, which was connections <laughs> and relationships, and really given us a, a framework to think uh, think about in relation to research and a little bit more of an academic way of thinking about things, things that I know you're doing all the time. So if you can just join me in thanking you again. <laughs>